our time uh, in this morning uh, together. Okay. All right. Let's just ask the Lord for his blessing now as we look at this. Okay. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the way that you do not leave us in the dark about some of these things. And we pray uh, that you would meet us this morning and help us to understand your words. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so just briefly review. I've stopped going all the way back to the beginning for the review. We'll just go back a couple of weeks now and review. Uh, so we have been looking at what is a church. Local churches are gatherings of saints who gather regularly. They gather definably. And by that we mean that saints join themselves to churches as visible, identifiable members. In other words, we know who's part of a church. Um, and thirdly, local churches are gatherings of saints. I couldn't find a good word to sum up the last couple of weeks, apart from dependently. Uh, local churches are gatherings of saints. Why do we come together? Well, because we need each other, is what we've seen. By virtue of the Spirit's work to join us together, He's put us together in the body of Christ. And the very fact that He's put us together means we're like members of a body. We don't exist on our own. We need one another. Uh, the members exist together in the church by relation, in a relationship of mutual dependence. And as we saw several weeks ago, that means both that we are needers, we need, but we also are supposed to be supplying the needs of other people, which means then that it's supposed to go both ways. It's both spiritual consumers as well as spiritual producers. And then we looked last week kind of a bridge between that idea and church leadership. How is it that we are equipped to minister to other people and then to us. What is it? What's the spark that starts that chain reaction of mutual ministry? And the spark that we saw in Ephesians 4 is that God gives pastors and teachers to equip the saints so that then the saints do the work of the ministry. They minister to one another, and the result is that the body grows up into Christ who is our head. So as we look at the New Testament, the predominant word for the leader in the church, the pastor, is elder. And you'll find that many, many, many times in your New Testament. And we'll just look this morning and next week at this week, who, who are elders? And next week we'll look at what do elders do in the life of a church? What do they do? And how do we respond to that uh, as believers? So... Uh, let's start here. I just have two questions we'll look at this morning. One is, what is an elder? And the second one is, how many of them are there in a church? Um, and we'll just go through what the scripture says about those two. So what is an elder? Well, when we read our New Testament, it's, not, it's hard to read far without noticing a group of church leaders called elders. And we find some of them here in Acts 20. I just want to read two verses. Look with me at Acts 20, verse 17. Here's Paul. He is on a voyage, and he stops in Miletus, and in, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them, and he has many things that he wants to say to them. The other verse that's going to be significant this morning is verse 28, as he comes to the end of his admonitions to these elders of the Ephesian church. Verse 28, Paul says, You elders, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Pay attention to the flock to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's a little difficult to know exactly how to translate that. Does God have blood? Does Jesus have blood? Exactly what does that mean? And we're not going to go into that phrase at this point. But we find here a group of men called elders. And we find them in verse 17. They come to Paul. And Paul has some admonitions to them. It says in verse 17 that they are elders of the church. And that was the church in Ephesus. And so evidently they were part of that church. And they're called by the term elders here. And Paul says of them in verse 28 that the Spirit of God has made them overseers over the flock. So there we know that these are the leaders in that church, these elders. And they have a responsibility, according to verse 28, to care for, or the King James says to feed, and we'll figure out why that why those two why those two different translations occur. 
It's the same Greek word, but why do they translate it differently? We'll find that out in a little bit here. But these elders, they are overseers over the flock by the Holy Spirit's appointment, and they are to care for the church of God. Now, what's interesting is that these two words that we see in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word, overseers. And the next word, to care for, both of those words show up somewhere else in the New Testament, and both of them speak about church leaders also. So let me show you that. Let's go back to verse 28. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We find that word overseers used four times in our New Testament to speak of church leaders. For example, let's see, your PowerPoint's a little behind. Uh, for example, in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all, write to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And he says, I not only write to all the saints, I write to all the saints with the overseers and deacons. So Paul's writing to a church. The church is composed of saints and overseers and deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. This is a trustworthy saying, Paul says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, the King James says, if anyone aspires, if anyone desires to be a bishop, and we'll talk about what a bishop is and what an overseer is in a little bit. But the ESV translates it overseer because it's actually the same word as overseer in Acts 20. So Acts 20, Paul says, you are commanded to oversee. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of one who oversees, he desires a noble task in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach and so on. So overseer in Acts 20, 28 shows up throughout the rest of the New Testament to refer to church leaders. And there's actually a list of qualifications for them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're part of a church in Philippians chapter 1. And if you can, I think it's on the back side, you'll see a list of all of the places in the New Testament where overseer refers to a church leader. And you can go and look at all of those later on. But the third word that we're finding here in Acts 20, not only are these elders called elders, they're also called overseers, but they're also said to care for the church of God. The King James says to feed the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Again, I'm not really trying to be technical here, just the underlying Greek word that's translated care for or feed in Acts 20.28. 20, it actually is the same word that we see in Luke chapter 2 when the angels appear to that group of men watching over sheep on the hills of Bethlehem when Jesus was born. He appears to shepherds. And that's why... The King James translates it feed, because that's essentially what a shepherd does. He feeds his flock. And here, what does, in the context in Acts 20, 28, he's talking about the flock. What does a shepherd do for a flock? Well, he cares for them, so it's translated care for. But it's exactly the same word in the Greek text. There's no, no difference there. So the, we, we've seen that, that these men are called elders. They're called overseers. And here they're said to shepherd the flock of God. And actually, throughout the New Testament, we find that the word shepherd refers to church leaders. For example, we saw this last week, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Christ gave apostles and prophets, evangelists. He gave shepherds. King James says pastors and teachers. The Greek word in Ephesians 4 is the same as the one here in Acts 20. It is the Greek word for a shepherd. As I said, it's the same word used to refer to those men who watched over sheep on the hills around Bethlehem. So why does the King James then translate it pastor? And why does the ESV have shepherd? Well, the word is the word shepherd, and the word pastor is actually, this is again a little technical, just a note if you want it. The word pastor is actually the word Latin, the Latin word for a shepherd. So if you're speaking Latin and you want to talk about a shepherd, you would say the pastor. If you're speaking English and you want to talk about somebody who watches over sheep, you call him a shepherd. If you're speaking Greek and you want to talk about somebody who watches over sheep, you'd call him a poimé. That's just the underlying Greek word here that we have in our, in our translations as shepherd or care for or feed. So we've got three different terms that we see. Elder, overseer, and shepherd. And the question is, who are these people? And here's another question. Elders, we see there's elders in a church, but overseers? 
So that word in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the word bishop in the King James. Now let's think about what a bishop is. A bishop is an overseer. It's just he oversees a group of churches. So you could think of the Bishop of London. There's a bunch of different Anglican churches in London. And the Bishop of London is over all the pastors of those churches and over all the saints in those churches. He oversees them all. Is that what an overseer is in the New Testament? Is there supposed to be somebody above the church who watches over the church? And what about shepherds? Well, let's go back to Acts chapter 20. Hopefully you're still there. Um, and let's just look once again at what Paul says here and see if we can understand the relationship between these two. Okay. So verse 17, Paul calls the elders of the church. How many of them do you think there were? Well, there's at least two, right, because it's elders. So let's, say there's, let's say there's three of them. He calls all three of them. And we know that Timothy was one of them. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Okay? So there's three elders that Paul calls from the church at Ephesus. And he comes in verse 28 and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's speaking to all three of them here. And pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. How many of those three are overseers? All three. And he says, You all have the responsibility to care for the church of God. How many of those three are shepherds? All three. Is there such a thing as a bishop who stands over a group of churches? Well, whatever the, those Anglican translators of our King James were thinking, there is no such thing as a bishop who stands over the churches. There are elders who are pastors, who are shepherds, who are overseers, who care for the church of God. And that is what we see in Acts chapter 20. And actually, this is not the only place in the New Testament where these three words are used to speak of the same group of people. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, I mean, this is page 590, if that helps you find it quickly. 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's look at verse 1. It's up here in case you don't want to turn there. So I exhort... Peter says, the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I exhort the elders to shepherd the flock. Are elders shepherds? Yes. I exhort the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Again, same word as overseer in Acts chapter 20. So here we've got elders. Doesn't show up super well here in bold, who shepherd, who oversee. So again, all three words used of one group of people in a local church. And we see the same thing in Titus chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you would appoint elders in every church. Uh, if anyone is above reproach, he can be an elder, because an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So we don't have the term shepherd here, but we do have elders and overseers, and they are the same group of people. So in the New Testament, an elder equals an overseer, equals a shepherd, equals a pastor. This is the group of men that God has appointed in the church to lead and guide the church. So why are all three of these words used to describe what we call the pastor of the church? Why doesn't he just call them pastors and be done? Why does he call them elders? Why does the Holy Spirit use overseers? Why does the Holy Spirit use shepherds? What is this? Is this just supposed to be confusing for us? <laughs> no, each one of these words means something different. A shepherd tells us something about what a pastor is supposed to do if he's called a shepherd. If he's called an overseer, it tells us something about what a pastor is supposed to do. If, if he's called an elder, that tells us something about him that shepherd doesn't tell us. So let's just look at those couple of things now. The function of elders, what are they supposed to be and do? And we're going to look at part of this this week and part of this next week. By looking at what they're called... 
we learn something about what they're supposed to do. And the reason for that is because what the word shepherd is, is what's called a metaphor. And all that means is when John or Peter or Paul calls these men shepherds, he's not saying the people in the congregation have wool and hooves and should be shorn once a year and they will sold. It's a picture. The man is supposed to do something like what a shepherd with the staff, with the crook and the, the wool and the hooves. He's supposed to do something like what that man does. His occupation is something like the occupation of a shepherd. And so what does it mean when a pastor is called an elder in the New Testament? Let's see if we can put that up here. Well, let's just stop there for a second. This term, elder, when a pastor is called an elder, it, it has less to do with what an elder is supposed to do and more to do with what an elder is supposed to be. He's supposed to be an elder. And, of course, you can see even there in the English word elder that an elder, the word elder is very close to the word older, right? Does the fact that a man is the oldest in the church make him an elder? Does a man who is middle-aged, who has men in the church who are older than him, does that mean that he cannot be an elder in the church? And the answer I think that we can find to that question is in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. This verse is written to Timothy, who himself is an elder in the church in Ephesus. And Paul says to him this, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth. So is Timothy the oldest man in the church? No. And yet, because he's not the oldest man, Paul has to say to him, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. In leading the church, he shouldn't act like a young, immature person. In leading the church, he is supposed to set the believers an example. Normally, we look up to older people because they have lived longer than we have. They have more maturity. Barbara's smiling. We look up to older people. Because they have more maturity, we think, and more wisdom, and that is the biblical pattern. Parents are supposed to look up to and respect the wisdom of their parents. But what about when you have a man in the faith who is only 25 or 40 as a pastor? Does that mean that he cannot be a pastor because he is not an elder? And the answer to that is, what kind of elder are we talking about? Are we talking about physical age? We're talking about spiritual maturity. And that's what Paul says, says here. He says, you have to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. All of these are matters of Christian living, Christian life. He's supposed to be a man, not of physical maturity necessarily, but a man of spiritual maturity. And this is what we find if you just turn one page back in your Bible, First Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that an overseer has to meet certain qualifications. You don't have to meet qualifications to be a member of the church. You just have to be a believer. But if you want to be in leadership, you've got to distinguish yourself in your level of spiritual maturity and your ability to teach, Paul says. So by calling someone an elder... The New Testament directs us to consider that the person who holds that office, it directs us to consider his spiritual maturity, his exemplary conduct, his Christian character, his knowledge of the scriptures. In that sense, he is supposed to be the more mature one. And this tells us something then about the local church. It's not run by young people. It's the elders who are the leaders in the church. In fact, one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 is that the overseer not be a new convert. He's got to have some measure, perhaps even some of the greatest measure of spiritual maturity in the church. So what do we gather from the fact that these men are called overseers? What are we supposed to understand about their function if they are overseers? There you have a list of the four places in the New Testament where church leaders are called overseers. And we've looked at three of them already. Titus 1.7, we actually saw it in passing already. 
But the word overseer, we can find that same word in other passages of Scripture that help us to understand what it means. So the word overseer actually shows up in James 1.27. Can you find it? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted or unstained from the world. The word overseer is in that verse. Can you find it? Any guesses? It's the word visit. Someone who visits is an overseer. It's the same Greek word in the underlying text. Just look with me at Acts 15, uh, listen to Acts 15.36, and you're welcome to turn if you want, I don't have this one on the board. After some days, Paul Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul is going back, he says, let's go oversee them, let's go visit them and see how they are. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you pay any attention to man, God? He was so much greater. Why pay any attention to us? And why do you pay any attention to the son of man that you care for him? The word care for is the same word. God pays attention to us and he oversees us. What does that mean that he oversees us? Well, think about someone who pays attention to another. And here the word is translated, who cares for another. You kind of get a little little picture here of what an overseer is supposed to do. Oh, we already read this one. I already read this one to you. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let's see how they are. Paul is being an overseer at that point. Now... If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I just want to shock you with something that shocked me, okay? 1 Peter chapter 4. I want you to look at 1 Peter 4.15. 1 Peter 4.15. The word overseer is in that verse. Can you find it? It's not translated overseer, but it's the same word, same underlying Greek word. It's just translated differently. 1 Peter 4.15. What is an overseer? Anybody got any guess? Is it matters? No. Suffer. What's that now? Suffer. No. Overseer is the word, at least the ESV translates it, as meddler. Someone who meddles in the affairs. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or as a Meddler, overseer, busybody in other men's affairs. (laughs) That's the word overseer. Does that give you any picture of what a pastor's role is in your spiritual development? An elder's role. Um, How aloof should he be? Of course, this doesn't mean that he micromanages the affairs of your life. He has no authority at all to tell you what house you should buy or what car you should drive. But when it comes to your growth in Christ-likeness, is the relationship supposed to be like this, or is the relationship supposed to be like this? He is supposed to be involved in the spiritual growth of those people under his care. And actually, I really like the pattern that we see here. Okay, so what did Paul do? So he goes to the cities and he proclaims the word of the Lord to them. And then he leaves. And then he says, let's go back and see how they're doing. So there's the double pattern. Proclaim the word of the Lord. And then, how are you doing following up on that? How are you growing in this? How can I help you to grow in what the word of the Lord has said to you? Elders preach the word. And then they watch over the flock to see the word take root and spring up in their lives. Elders watch over and care for the souls of those in the flock. And this, incidentally, if you go back a couple hundred years you will find that every pastor in every church visited his congregation regularly. He spent time with them, overseeing, watching over them. You know, we think of an overseer as a boss on a, on a, on a, on a construction site, <coughs> overseer. 
I'm not sure that that's so much what the New Testament word means as much as someone who is intimately concerned. He shows up with intimate concern for the well-being of that person, their spiritual well-being. And so this is why Paul says to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and pay careful attention to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd them, to care for them, which God obtained with his own blood. The Holy Spirit has made these men overseers for that purpose. And apparently then that means that the Spirit of God knows we need the oversight of men like this or the Spirit would not have put such men in the church. He would not have created overseers if they were unnecessary. And this, in part, is what makes a man a good pastor. He is intimately concerned with your spiritual development and growth. And the third word that we see is the word shepherd. We know now what this guy's supposed to be if he's an elder. We know now what this guy's supposed to be if he's an overseer. What about if he is called a shepherd? And I think here it overlaps a lot with overseer. But let's see if we can just understand this one a little bit more. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that Christ has given uh, sorry, elders, and here the word is shepherds and teachers. And I didn't really point this out last week when we were looking at this passage, but let's, let's just think about what we would expect some of these offices to look like in the church. Okay, so let's say that the Apostle Paul showed up here. And we said, Paul, you're an Apostle. Do your Apostle thing. Be an Apostle. What would we expect him to do? Would we expect him to cook us up a meal? Would we expect him to wash our cars? What would we expect an Apostle to do? We would expect him to use his mouth, right? To speak to us the word of God. What about prophet? If a prophet showed up, same thing. What about an evangelist? Same thing. What about a shepherd and teacher? See, those two go together. What does it mean that he shepherds? Well, that has a lot to do with teaching. And I didn't really point this out last week, but as you look through Ephesians, apostles and prophets, it says, I think three times, that they laid the foundation, and so they're done. There's no apostles and prophets today. But they've been replaced by evangelists and pastors who teach, shepherds who teach. In other words, the evangelists and the shepherds who teach are continuing on that verbal ministry of the apostles and prophets in the church today. And so, what does it mean to shepherd? And this is why Acts 20, verse 28 says, pay careful attention to feed the church of God. What does it mean to shepherd? Well, primarily it means to utter words that feed the souls because they are Christ's own words. And that's what it means to feed the church. Uh, let me just see if there is anything else here that I wanted to say about that. The primary way this happens is by feeding the sheep the word of God through careful teaching and preaching. Uh, Christ tells us that he is the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. He's the head shepherd, the arch shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4. But... He invests men with oversight over his flock who are also called shepherds. They stand in his place as ministers to the flock. It is Christ's own ministry to his people when an elder, a shepherd, stands and teaches God's word. Provided he is actually teaching God's word and not his own words. So this is what an elder is what a pastor is, what a shepherd is, what a overseer is. Now, one other question that I think we can go through fairly quickly. How many of these people are there supposed to be in a church? How many elders in a church? Let me just show you four, five scripture references quickly here. Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Now, from my leaders, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. How many elders are there in the Ephesian church? How many elders are there in all of these churches throughout Asia Minor that Paul plants? I'll leave that up there if you wanted to jot down references. Acts 14.23 and 20.17. What about Acts 20.28? Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock. We already know these guys are from one church, the church in Ephesus. Over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. How many overseers are there in the church in Ephesus? What about James chapter 5, verse 14? Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. 
In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Were there multiple churches in the towns in Crete? Well, Paul's gone through as a pioneer missionary and planted churches. It seems to me that he's only planted one in each town. It's small enough, people are able to gather together. It's not like you've got to walk 45 minutes to get to the other side of, of a town in Crete to go to the second Baptist church of whatever town it was. So the pattern that we see in the New Testament is that there were multiple elders in every church. Um, and we'll get to next week, the New Testament does make a distinction between a main, what we would call pastor who's preaching the word every Sunday, and elders then who assist him in shepherding the flock. In other words, I'm not sure that what we see here totally means the brethren, sort of a model of all equals that there's no senior pastor, uh, no lead pastor, whatever you want to call him. We'll find that next week. But nevertheless, it seems then that the New Testament pattern is clear. And I just want to make four points here. I think you've got these in your notes. Maybe not. Um, I think... I'm sorry, I changed all my notes around. That actually... Who can be an elder for next week? Oh, I'm so sorry. So we'll just print those again. Print that again next week. I'm so sorry. I think I is how many elders in a church? Is that a question on there somewhere? Yeah. yeah that's yes. That's that's all the verses you just went okay. So you've got all those verses. So now I want to make four points that I think come out of those verses about how many elders there ought to be in a church. Okay. The first point is this: a church can be a church with no elders. And the reason why I say that is because of what we just saw in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Does that mean there were no churches in these towns until Titus got there and appointed elders? Paul's been through a year before. He's preached the gospel. He's gathered believers together into churches. And now he sends Titus back in a year later and says, all right, go appoint them some elders. So there's churches that exist without elders. In other words... If a church has no pastor, is it no longer a church? Is having a pastor what makes something a church? And the answer is no. So the first point is a church can be a church with no elders. Secondly, every reference to elders in the New Testament is plural. We never see Paul writing to the church and the elder in a specific circumstance. It's always the church and the elders in Philippi. Um, now, there are exceptions to that rule. I said that there's no time that the word elders occurs in the singular. There's only one of them. The exception to that rule is when, it's, when the New Testament is talking about elders in general. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, an elder has got to be blameless, husband of one wife. But that's not saying only one elder in a church. It's just saying every one of those elders has to be this one. So every reference to elders in the New Testament is plural. Every single one. There are no exceptions. Third, we know of 15 churches in the New Testament that function with multiple elders. You can actually identify at least 15 in the New Testament that we know. The New Testament says there were multiple elders. And finally, there's no church in the New Testament that functioned with only one elder. And this leads us then to the following conclusion. True or false, from this we must conclude that every church must have multiple elders. False. Because you can have a church with no elders. <laughs> How then are we supposed to put all these things together? I think the way to put these four points together is this. Having a church with no elders or one elder is not wrong, but nobody should be content with that situation. When the church in Crete had no elders, Paul wasn't content that it stayed that way. He sent Titus to appoint elders there, yet he didn't send Titus to appoint one elder in every church. He was satisfied only when there were elders in every church. And so in God's providence, many churches only ever have one pastor. And God calls many pastors to shepherd churches alone, but no one ought ever to be fully satisfied with that arrangement. Indeed, there's actually many dangers in that kind of there's one man who runs the show and nobody else has any authority to challenge him. We ought to pray then regularly and fervently that this church plant would be led by multiple elders from as early on as possible. The scripture is clear that we ought not appoint elders in haste, 
But we must pray that Christ, who has risen up from the dead to give men like this as gifts to his church, we must pray that he would give us several men who would lead and teach. So we will stop there. Um, you know what? I do have who can be an elder in my notes today. So actually the notes are correct. Sorry. They are correct. <laughs> So let's, uh, let's just start into this, and I think most of this is going to be self-explanatory. I think we can go through this in about five minutes, okay? And then we'll be done. So who can be an elder then? If we want more than one, who should we be looking for? The first thing that we have to look for is males, M-A-L-E-S. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. This is on page 576, Army, if this helps you. 576, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul says, in view of the order of things at creation, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Now, if he shepherds by teaching, can a woman fulfill that role? And if it involves the exercise of authority, as we'll see next week, can a woman exercise authority over men in the church? And for that reason, throughout church history and up until only in the last few years, has this never, ever really been questioned. That pastors are to be men. So they do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So elders, first of all, must be male. Secondly, just look at the next chapter, chapter 3. The second criterion for who can serve as an elder is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The man who serves in the office of elder must aspire to that office. No one can force him into it. The church cannot coerce him to serve as an elder. And just listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Welcome to turn there again if you'd like. But Peter says, You must shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, the man cannot be forced to do this against his will. He must aspire to it. How do you figure out if a man actually wants to do this or not? And how do you figure out if that's just personal ambition? And the answer to that is this. Does the man elder without the office? Does he actually show concern for people's spiritual well-being even though he hasn't been formally recognized as an elder? Does he actually go out of his way to disciple other people? If you give him an opportunity to teach, how does it go? Are God's people actually edified? In other words, calling a man who's not an elder, now you're an elder. That does not automatically make him now an elder. It doesn't automatically make him someone who's concerned for the spiritual well-being of believers under his care. It doesn't automatically make him a teacher. The question is, is he doing those things of his own accord, willingly? If he is, then let's say, hey, we want to recognize you formally as an elder in this church. So he's got to be aspiring. Thirdly, he's got to be qualified. And the two New Testament texts are 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And I've tried to summarize those there. What you've got is summary statements of five different categories of qualifications. And then underneath those in smaller type, you've got the exact words that I'm finding in the Bible that I think line up underneath those categories. So five categories, he's got to be of irreproachable character before saints and outsiders. There's nothing you could accuse him of that would actually stick to him. Because you can't say of this man, well, he's such and such a kind of a person. People say, people all look around the room and say, yeah, actually, that's what we know him to be too. In other words, the charge sticks to him. There's nothing you can pin on that man, nothing negative you can pin on him that would follow him around. It would be a charge that somebody might throw at him like, really? We don't believe that about this man. He's not that way at all. So irreproachable character before saints and outsiders. 
Secondly, he's got to have an exemplary family situation, manifesting marital fidelity and excellence in household management. Third, he's got to manifest self-restraint and self-mastery. He's got to manifest self-control, be prudent. He can't be addicted to alcohol. He cannot be a pugnacious person. In other words, someone who, if you get in his face, he gets like this. He has no control. He's ready to fight. He can't, he's got to be gentle. He's got to be peaceable. And finally, a third, fourthly, he's got to be a lover of good things. He can't be self-willed. In other words, so inconsiderate of others' viewpoints because he values himself too highly. He's got to be able to say, that person has a good point, and I love what's good, not just myself and my own viewpoint. He's got to be able to recognize what is good in other people's viewpoints. He's got to be free from the love of money. He's got to be hospitable, a lover of others, and he's got to be a lover of good. And finally, he's got to be a sound in the faith and able to teach sound doctrine. When, when he opens his mouth to teach the word of God, people ought to say, ah, yes, that makes sense. And ah, yes, I understand that. And ah, yes, I want to do that. This is what it means to be able to teach sound doctrine. Now, question, before whom must he satisfy these qualifications? Is he doing all of these things so that God will look down from heaven and say, ah, oh, what a wonderful man. That one I'll make him an elder. No, he must satisfy these qualifications before the congregation. For example, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. Can any overseer satisfy that requirement before God? <laughs> but is it possible that a man could satisfy that requirement before a congregation? That he be of irreproachable character? Yes. And finally, he must be installed by the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to say these things here, and this may raise questions. And we can come back and talk about them later. Uh, so we got through all this. Sorry, the PowerPoint, I'm not keeping up with it. He's got to be installed as elder by the Holy Spirit. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So who makes a man an elder in a church? Does he make himself? The Holy Spirit does it. How do we know who the Holy Spirit's made the elder? The answer to that is found in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, and you, Titus, appoint elders in every church. Listen to Acts 14, 23. When they, that would be the apostles, when the apostles had appointed elders in every church. And listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. Don't be hasty in laying on hands of a man to exalt him, to put him in the office of elders. Don't do that hastily. So who puts him in that office? Apparently it's Timothy, the pastor, who's, who's appointing a man then laying hands on him. So is it the Holy Spirit or is it the apostles and Timothy who make the man the elder? And the answer is both. When the congregation says, here is a man who meets Christ's criteria. Here is a man who's qualified. Here is a man who can teach the word. Let's make him an elder. When the congregation speaks, they're all indwelt by the Spirit of God. And when they agree together, this man will serve in the office of elder. Then, that is the Holy Spirit's appointment of that man to the office of elder. There's a couple more things that I'll say about that. I think the most biblically faithful way of doing this in an established church. So, you, you've, you've got Holy Spirit appoints a man to office of elder. But we actually don't have a passage of scripture that says congregation. We've got one that says apostles. We've got one that says Titus under Paul's authority. And we've got one that says, You, Timothy, lay hands on a man to appoint him to the office of elder. So what do we do about that? Well, I think the most biblically faithful way of doing this in an established church is to rely upon the leadership of that church, in other words, other elders, to bring candidates to the congregation for their consideration. Here's a man that we've examined as elders, we think he's qualified. We think he's sound in the faith. What do you think? And give the congregation the final say because that it's the congregation in whom dwells the Spirit of God. In other words, you can't somebody can't just pop up in a business meeting and say, "Well, I think Brother Bob should be uh, an elder," and without any opportunity for anyone to evaluate Brother Bob, let's have a vote, and Brother Bob's it. Now, where is the opportunity to qualify that in that case? Uh, where's the opportunity to think hard about whether or not he's actually sound in the faith? 
on whether or not Brother Jim and his recommendation is what should stand. In a church plant context where there is no appointed elders already in place, the congregation as the final authority must recognize and appoint a man to the office of elder, either based on their own evaluation of the man, or perhaps based partly on the appointment of another biblically faithful church who has said, we recognize this man, we sent him out, we have examined him, he's sound in the faith, and we sent him to another land, we sent him to another city to start a church, and we say, well, here's another biblically faithful church, and we're going to trust their judgment to some degree. We want to know this man, we want to evaluate him, but we're not actually in a position to ask the question, ah, is he actually sound in the faith? We, we, we just don't know theology well enough, but, but here's a church that's biblically sound and faithful, and they say, we have examined the man, and he is. Another possibility is to use a historic confession of faith, something that people have always agreed upon, that this is what the Scriptures teach. Put that in front of that fellow and say, hey, do you believe this? Heart and soul, ready to defend it, teach it. So the Spirit makes his mind clear, and the work of creating an elder is by ultimately the appointment of the congregation. That means then, and we'll come to this in a couple of weeks, that the ultimate authority in a church is the congregation. That is where the Spirit resides, and Christ leads the congregation by His Spirit. Thus, by the appointment of the congregation, a man begins to fill this role toward a church under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So next week we will look at what are an elder's responsibilities in a church, and we will look at what are our responsibilities to an elder in a church. Um, and if you remember the membership triangle, that's that two-way street between elders and saints in the church. And we'll just look at those. All right, sorry, that was nine minutes instead of five to finish up that point. But let's, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord God, Jesus Christ has risen up from the dead. We believe that. And Paul tells us that he has ascended on high and given gifts to men. Lord, we, we ask that you would raise up men in this country, in this city, in this church plant, Lord, who would lead us into the green pastures of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would raise up men who would shepherd our souls, all of us, Lord. No one of us is exempt. We all need other people's spiritual eyes looking in upon our spiritual life, exhorting us, encouraging us, teaching us, rebuking us, calling us to confess sin. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us through the ministry of men who teach your word and who shepherd the flock. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Move on to, after that, my plan is to go to, okay, so what are our responsibilities towards each other in the congregation? Let's talk about that need. We need one another. What's that look like? What am I supposed to be doing? The New Testament gives us plenty of direction. Any questions? Some things today that probably could have raised some questions. Anything you want to revisit? If anything comes up, come back and let's revisit. Take I would tend to think yes, that it includes that. In other words, the shepherding is not merely verbal. Yeah. I would tend to, not merely preaching. It's not just public ministry. Um, I would actually tend to think that the idea of personal one-on-one discipleship probably falls more under the sea of that. In other words, the pastor sitting up in front of the congregation while everybody singing songs, getting ready to preach, that's not his opportunity to oversee. I mean, he's looking over, but that's not his oversight. You know, his oversight is actually meeting people as they come in. Let's have coffee this week. How can I pray for you? What's been challenging? What temptations are you facing? Uh, here's a little verse of scripture that maybe the Lord will use to encourage you, those sorts of things. Or the formal, the formal discipleship of men towards ministry. Like, I would love to, in time, have like a men's breakfast once every two weeks, early Saturday morning, and just call it leadership development. And have a ladies, ladies opportunity for mutual encouragement and fellowship along those lines. Um, those kind of things, the, the, the gathering on Sundays 
is not the only time the pastor teaches and shepherds and oversees. It's not the only time the congregation loves and exhorts and prays for. In other words, it's supposed to start that. The ministry of the pastor teacher is supposed to equip the saints so that then the saints do the work of the ministry throughout the week. That's the way it's supposed to work. So we've all got responsibilities. Do you think about the uh, those people who just call themselves like as a bishop or, or a person? But I think you, you mentioned a bit that I didn't touch. Yeah. When you look at church hierarchy today, for example, the Anglican Church, we're familiar with that here, right? They have the parish, which is the community, the parish of Sunnybank or whatever it is, parish of Jingle or whatever. And there is a, they call a priest, bad term, there's only one priest, it's Jesus Christ, but they call him priest, who oversees that parish. Above that priest is the bishop. He oversees 10 or 12 different parishes and, and priests. Above the bishop is the archbishop. They might be the archbishop of Australia. And he oversees all the bishops in Australia who oversee all the little sections of Australia who oversee all the parishes. So you've got this hierarchy in the Church of England. It's the same way in Roman Catholicism. Um, the Reformation in 1500 said, no, man is not the authority in the church. The Pope is not the authority in Christ's church. It is the Word of God and the Spirit. The pastor preaches the Word of God. The congregation dwells the Spirit. So it's pastor and congregation. And together, as they move forward together, that is the Spirit leading the church. So what about somebody who says, well, I'm a bishop, you got to listen to me. I would say, who made you a bishop? Did you make yourself a bishop? Then Jesus didn't make you a bishop. If a person wants to say, I have authority over you, I would say, how do you have authority over me? Who gave you that authority? And his answer is, Jesus Christ. And I say, how? How did Jesus Christ give you authority over me? The only answer that I can find in the New Testament is, Pastors have authority over the congregation, and the congregation has authority to appoint pastors. And so there you've got it in the local church. In other words, there's no such thing in the New Testament as a bishop who travels around to different churches and straightens the pastor out, straightens the congregation out, gets everything in order, and then he goes on to the next church. Does that make sense? All the authority of Christ, we'll find this in two weeks, all the authority of Christ resides in the local church. And it is through his shepherds and through his spirit that he exercises his authority in that church. To submit yourself to the congregation. If the congregation says, well, getting a bit far afield. If the congregation comes to you and they say, um, brother, your conduct is out of line. Jesus Christ is not pleased with the way you've been acting. And you say, I don't care, I'm going to do my own thing. You're rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ at that point. And if they... If they reject you in church discipline, you've got to think really hard about that. It is Christ saying to you, something's not right. We'll find that in a couple of weeks. I want to look at Matthew 18. The congregation is the final authority, and pastors operate to teach the word of Christ. And so it's not that elders have authority. Elders do not have authority in the church. Elders who teach the word of God bring Christ's authority to that church. That makes sense. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Well, 